0: My name's Claire Parker, and it's time for tea, your monthly window on all things transgender. Each month, we dive into trans news, reviews, and interviews from Brighton, the UK, and beyond. This month is dedicated to oral histories and in particular the amazing project that is Brighton Transform. And we have the ever-vessing and delightful EJ Scott who's part of the project in the studio to bring us up to speed and help us discover for ourselves some of the recorded oral histories. All this and plenty of music all our way here on Time For Tea. Let's kick off by clearing away some of the cobwebs and jump around. Jackie Wilson said, by Van Morrison, and before that, you heard Hounds of Pain and Jump Around. Now, over the course of the last 18 months, a team of trained volunteers have recorded stories from trans contributors. And these will all be stored in an online article, online article or even archive. A book of life stories will be produced together with a public exhibition. uh, And this has all been launched as well as many documentaries to come here on Radio Reverb. Now, the project was steered by trans people who both define the content and the outcomes. And I'm delighted now to welcome into the studio a member of that project and probably the bubbliest guest to grace us with their presence here on Time for Tea. Welcome, the ebullient... E. J. Scott, you
1: are cheeky, Claire Parker. Hello, everyone.
0: That actually, officially, cheeky <laughs> is is my middle name. Now, Bright, uh, Brighton transformed exhibition, and you're part of that. And here's a list of here's a list of the jobs that you were involved in: oral history trainer, volunteer, mentor. I said mentor, not mental, mentor and <laughs> exhibition curator. And for those who don't know what Brighton Transformed is, EJ, and before we go on to talk about the, the roles you have, can you please bring us or some of the listen, listeners up to speed if they don't really know what Brighton Transformed is? Can you tell us about it?
1: Look, the the whole project was designed to record the oral histories, the stories, the untold stories of trans people in Brighton. We spend, I think, the, the whole issue of trans issues at the moment are on the tipping point. We're getting a lot of media attention. There's Things are growing surrounding the subject, but often it's from other people looking at us. It's not from us going out. And so the whole point about Oral history. People call it the democratisation of history. It's, it's really the opportunity for people to tell their own stories and the truth without the whole spectacularisation of the media that surrounds us and our bodies and what we go through and so forth. And so making it local meant that people could join together. They could tell each other their stories. We could record each other's stories. As a process of that, we're going to have radio documentaries come out of it. We've got a full color book that's about to be launched and we've done an incredible exhibition that was just really quite extraordinary. So it's it's a really powerful project.
0: Absolutely, and um, I'm sure one that will be reflected as other, other people hear it and take it up. Now, let's step back a moment. Um, the jobs and the sort of the different hats that you were wearing within that project. Uh, we've got oral history trainer, volunteer mentor, and exhibition curator. Start with uh, what exactly is an oral history trainer, and why do we need one?
1: Well, oral, oral history. There's a lot of ethics issues of ethics surrounding oral history. You've got to let people tell their own stories. You've got to do it in safe spaces, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we were very committed in this project to not only getting the material but to also skilling trans people in the process. So it wasn't about someone just going out with a microphone and and being the skilled interviewer and creating almost a superficial environment. It was about getting people in, meeting each other, teaching them about the ethics that have been set by the um, Oral History Society of the UK that's run out of the British Library, and putting them all through that process of understanding why oral history is important, how to do it ethically, how to do it effectively. So everyone got trained in those processes, got trained how to use the digital equipment, and then it became a process of all these people that had gone through the training, going out into the community and interviewing each other telling each other their stories which made it a very safe space because you were talking to another trans person who could relate to what you'd gone through you weren't talking to a journalist you know and so I think that was very part important part of the process to tell you the truth
0: so I just want to touch base you said about the British Library there is if you like there's a set recipe for um, putting down an oral history tell us about that
1: the process is really it's about not so much doing an interview because in the interview process you craft the content in an interview you're coming up with the information you want to have drawn out. In an oral history process, the story comes from the person. It's real, it's off the cuff, it's it's not calculated. And uh, that's the kind of guidelines that the British Library... That who where, where the Oral History Society is run out of. that That's the kind of process that they, they formulate.
0: So you're also a, a volunteer mentor.
1: That was just part of the process of, of enabling all this to happen. Um, my other real hat was exhibition curator. And I I'd say curator lightly. It was more about being part of a team of volunteers uh, who had all different kinds of skills regarding... Exhibitions, graphic design, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and we all got together and we worked for months and months and months to put together a multi venue exhibition throughout Brighton. So that was
0: through July and some of August. That was the Brighton Transform exhibition. Obviously this is radio so we can't see the exhibition so can you paint it for us?
1: Yeah we did in the Jubilee Library we built a big picture frame out of wood rescued from the old pier we put inside that photos of all of us who'd been involved in the project and then we had our oral history teremo- um, testimonies in in there and you sat on your little deck chair in front of the pier a wooden frame and looked at everyone and listened to their experiences um, up St James's Street for Trans Prime all the volu- all the people that were involved in the project we did big whopping great big black and white portrait photographs of them and had them in the windows all the way up the street of of st james's street really promoting visibility but also reclaiming st james street as a trans friendly it does need to be reclaimed it really needs reclaiming so that was that was the ethos so, there
0: so, so it, it's been and gone now but um you must have some some memories um, and reflections what sort of impact did it have not necessarily on trans people but people were coming in and through the actual um exhibitions what impacts did you see
1: i i seem to not be able to walk around town at the moment without someone going i saw your photo there and, da, 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 da. and it's like oh well it's worked i'm not sure how i feel about it but it's worked no look at the the impact was that it raised visibility and for the general public which meant that we had people ask us questions about it we had people ask and we were the people giving the answers back which meant that it was truth and it was from experience and it was heartfelt. So I think raising visibility and communicating from our hearts is the most important thing.
0: Thank you very much, EJ. Please um, stay with us in the studio. Um, we're going to play a track now. When we come back, uh, we're going to hear some trans voices from the project um, where there are some amazing and moving narratives. And obviously I can't, we can't possibly do justice to all of them. So I've picked out a list and hopefully this covers many related trans experiences. Before that... Jill Scott and you're listening to Time for Tea on Radio Reverb 97.2 FM That was Hate on Me by Jill Scott EJ Scott, another Scott is in the studio with me and we are discussing Brighton Transform now we've talked about the project already and the creation of trans oral histories Um, so I think it's probably time I hope you agree with me that we should listen in on one here's Cass Hoskins who talks to us about her childhood
2: My name's Cass, Cass Hoskins I was born in Brighton in 1968, I moved away when I was younger. I lived up in London and Manchester, and I moved back in my 20s. I transitioned, or started my transition, about four years ago. So it's still quite fresh for me. I was always trans. I knew I was trans from, you know, it's this cliché, I knew when I was four. I didn't know I was trans then, but I knew that I wanted to be a girl. I remember being jealous of the girls at school, and I remember being confused by it cause I didn't really want to be a boy and it was kind of that was I didn't understand until I was about seven when there was a documentary about a and going through the Charing Cross clinic it was back in the 70s and my bedroom was above my mum the living room so I could hear the tv through the floor and I remember lying in bed listening to this at night panicking terrified thinking this is me this is who I am that's exactly that's me that's talking about me and it scared me, and I didn't quite know how to deal with it at that age. I mean, at seven years old is a young age to know these things, or we'll understand that. And I think I hid it by being tough, or trying to be tough, and being this kind of getting into fights at school. But it wasn't. It didn't feel like it was me. My mum had an antique shop, and, and you know we'd we go to the auctions and markets and stuff with her, buying antiques. I remember listening to Antique the old old antique dealers kind of laughing because the documentary was a big big deal back in the 70s. Most people hadn't even really encountered this kind of thing before, and you know jokes like oh, you know, Bob's your auntie and stuff like that. You know, and it just felt like it was just terrifying. I, you know, like this would be me. This would be the joke about me. This would be everyone's reaction to me if I told people I was trans. And so you bury it deeper and deeper my fantasy dream, that would be a spaceship would come along and they would realise I was really a girl and that they would take me away and, you know, I'd become a girl by magic. But it always involved that someone else coming in and recognising me for who I was and transforming me to the person I should be. I don't think about that anymore. It's not like I have to be a girl in a fantasy world. The fear of transition and the fear of the whole process is so huge yeah, I will never be the woman I would love to be because I'm too tall and I'm too we've got big hands and all those cliches. But when I got on the bus and I got called love by the bus driver. that's what I wanted. That's confirmation. When taxi drivers stop calling you mate, that's the great step because if they don't see a woman, they will call you mate because they don't want, they're not going to call a the man their dress mate. I'm lucky I come from Brighton and I, have a, I work in a liberal industry surrounded by creative people and most people are cool, most people are amazing, you know, most of my friends are still my friends, you know, I think some of my male friends don't know quite what to say to me anymore, and a few have said, well you're a girl now, you're not, you can't be in our game which is a shame because I miss them but at least it's honest. I don't know if I want to sit in the pub and talk about football anyway. I don't want to be a stereotype. I don't, you know, I just work very hard. I mean, I still wear Dr. Martin boots, but I wear them with a different kinds of top. I think one of the nice things about becoming a woman is that there's a freedom in terms of, you know, the, the wardrobe you can choose from is broader. You can choose the dress, but you can choose not to wear the dress. And one of the things that's been great as my transitions have progressed and the hormones have transformed my body is that I can get away with being more butch. I think at the beginning it's really tough for the trans women. That I even feel I had to make a really big statement that I wasn't a girly bloke. I wasn't a bloke of just a bit effeminate who wore makeup. But this was a... I was being a woman. And I think that's quite tough. I remember feeling really tough. I remember feeling quite, you know i you know wearing a lot more skirts than I probably I would, I do now, because I had to f- make that point to people that this isn't, yeah, I'm not just a David Barry fan. Yes. When I first came out, before I started my transition, before I'd even gone to meet friends in the pub, like it went round, you know, it's the big story. You know, you know a lot of people in Brighton, and we were going for a pub, to the pub with some friends. And one was this kind of quite strong feminist friend of mine. And she was kind of like, like what does it mean to be a woman? Why? What, what's the difference? How does it feel to be a woman? How can you know you feel like a woman? And I said, I don't know what it feels like to be a woman. But what I know is that I've got to stop pretending to be a man. I think I have settled for being a trans woman. Very early in my transition, I used to go to this um, it was like a social night for trans people in Brighton. And this trans woman, who's much further, you know, she transitioned a long time before me, and she said, "Oh, you know, we just have to, you know, you have to be just be the best woman you can be." Actually, when I talk to cis women or genetic women or all the different terms for it, they all feel the same. I'm just the best woman I can be. When I used to complain about, you know, feeling like my body didn't work in the clothes I wanted to wear, and all my women friends were, "Welcome to womanhood, honey." The have done their trick. I look in the mirror and I don't see that bloke. I used to be looking back at me. I don't see the body doesn't jar with the clothes I'm wearing. It's great. I think it's great. It gives me a new lease of life.
0: Cass Hoskins there talking about her school experiences. And, and I guess most trans have memories of schools and coming to terms with their identities. EJ still in, in the studio with us. Um, from all of the stories that you heard, EJ... Was there um, a particular element of people's lives that they were talking about, or was it quite broad?
1: Um, listen, there, there were obviously key themes that came up school, family, parents, hormones, health, etc. But I think what was most astonishing was how diverse the stories were and how honest people were about their different situations. I mean, really, really, really heartbreakingly honest. And and I think that it really goes to show that we're not a homogenous group. Our experiences aren't all the same. We are just like broader society. We're a group of different people with different experiences. And it comes across in this project.
0: Thank you. Now, being trans is obviously challenging enough. But imagine now if you're also deaf. Here's a participant who not only tells us about her school that she was at, but also reflects on that often embarrassing of subjects when you're young and doing sports.
3: At age five, all I knew was that I was different from other children, but didn't know why. That's because I went to primary school at that age, and that was my first exposure to girls. This was a school where you had separate entrances for boys and girls. The school was gender segregated, except for inside the classroom. And when you came out onto the playground, the girls played on one side of the playground, boys played on another, and there was a big white line down the middle. I had the temerity to cross that line and go and play with the girls. It's only because the girls were doing stuff that I liked. I wanted to join in hopscotch, skipping rope, that sort of stuff. The boys were chasing each other around the playground and being generally stupid, I thought. And so I went over, and the teachers just came over to me and said, no, 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 can't do that, you've got to go and play with the boys, you know. And I go, huh? What? I had no idea what they were on about. Okay, fine, I go over and play with the boys. But this school, anyway, was difficult because I'm deaf. I have been since birth. And although I had a hearing aid and could hear some things, it didn't help that my teacher had no idea how to educate a deaf child and put me right at the back of the class. So I couldn't hear anybody. I could barely see anybody I felt completely isolated and I was very unhappy there it became pretty obvious and I started being bullied by the boys and my parents said well that's enough and after about one or two months of it they took me out of the school and they decided to look for a school for the deaf. Now they were quite insistent that if I went to a school for the deaf I would go to a school where they did not use sign language because they felt that, that would impair my speech. So the decision was made for me to go to a school for the deaf, which was oral education, rather manual. And the one they decided upon was in Brighton, Irving Dean Hall School. Why they chose that particular one, I'm not quite sure, because there were others up up north. They just wanted to get away from family as well. I mean, my father's family were in Yorkshire, my mother's in Nottingham. We moved down to Brighton, I was five and a half. Because I've been in Brighton since 1959. That first Wednesday we played rounders uh, round with girls. Next Wednesday the teachers came up to me, both PE teachers, and said If you want to play with girls, you've got to wear girls PE kit. And they presented me with a pile of girls PE kit complete with infamous green knickers. And they made me dress in that in the boys changing room in front of the other boys who were told to mock me. And now some of the boys did, some didn't. They were quite embarrassed about the affair. The teachers wanted to give me the maximum possible humiliation. By that time I was so, so angry with the teachers that I went ahead and came out onto the playing field dressed as a girl and the um, other girls were at first giggling and the teachers were saying, go on go on boys, look, look at the sissy and the girls just thought, oh, we are not having that? and they just closed ranks round me, literally and told the boys, shove off, go and play your bloody football and there's still a few of them were still confused, but some of the older girls just said, well, well okay we can't call you John because we call you Joe." Why? Right. And so, what happened? He played rounders, and then, next week, I avoided the humiliation by changing into these clothes in the boys' common room, which was empty at the time. And the teachers, the the plan was spoiled, but they couldn't really do anything. What could they do? Uh, anything more? I'm they're worried at that point. I would complain to the headmaster. I was terrified my parents would find out. We carried on that, went on for another six weeks. And then the headmaster found out. And he went utterly nuclear. Not so much with me, but with the teachers. So he called me into his study and I thought, oh, I'm in for it. And the first question he said to me is, is this true, you've been playing around in girls' kit with the girls? I said, yes. Have you told your parents? And I said, no. And he said, oh. And he said, okay. Um, forget about this, you're not playing rounders anymore, you just do some extra homework, extra study. I loved that because I was a SWAT and they finally decided, you know, I was excused P.E. with with the boys for that year. Never told my parents, it was forgotten. Next year, when it came round again, I played football with the boys. I just didn't want to go through all that again. It made me angry that the headmaster's first question was to find out whether Tom told my parents. It was quite obvious that he was terrified of being sued or the incident coming out and affecting the school's reputation. This is in hindsight. At the time, I just knew I was angry that he wasn't bothered about me.
0: Let's take a break now before we come back and hear some more oral histories.
4: She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. out of space On such a time Timeless flight And I think it's gonna be a long, long time to touch touchdown brings me round again to find I'm not the man John
0: This is Time for Tea on Radio Reverb, the UK's first and only trans-themed FM radio show. And if you want to catch any of our previous shows, they're all available on timefortea.podomatic.com. You just heard Elton John and Rocket Man. The lovely EJ Scott is still with us in the studio. And we're still talking Brighton Transform as we're playing a selection of oral histories from that project. Here's Ben Pritchard talking about hormones, surgery and careers.
5: The hormones, I think, I knew, I had kind of researched into stuff and I knew, I mean, they say because you're kind of going through female, well, this is how it was explained to me, you're going through female kind of menopause at the same time as you're becoming a, you know, a, a, you know going through puberty as a guy. So I found that quite hellish. I think I was like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. You know, they, they said, oh, you'll get quite angry. You'll get really horny. And I was like, yeah, great, bring on the horniness. But, and it was fantastic. Obviously you get, so i think one of the nurses told me i don't know if it's true but you when you first start the hormones you go you become 10 times more horny than most you know cisgendered guys are and i don't know whether that's true or not but that's the way i felt anyway but i did get very very aggressive when i first went on to the testosterone um and that was a lot of, that caused a lot of issues where i was living i was sharing a flat um and i just was wasn't happy and anyway it wasn't a great time. Um, it was fantastic once I got into my long term relationship because obviously being that horny especially when you first get something with someone it was amazing but I didn't realise quite how how big the mood swings would be so I found that was a big issue and uh, if you speak to my mum she she can remember it well and she doesn't really want to remember it because I was extremely moody um, so yeah I wish someone had said that I just followed kind of the given path back then I mean I think things are a bit more, a bit, bit different now even though that was only, you know, 14, 15 years ago, I just followed the route that I was told that the NHS, you know, did it in, as in you go to your doctor, your doctor or your psychiatrist or whatever, refers you to this other psychiatrist, the psychiatrist then refers you to Charing Cross. And they were the ones that, you know, once I decided this is what I definitely wanted to do, they said, yes, we think you should do this, because I just wasn't very sure for a good two or three years. Um, And then they put me also on the, the testosterone um unfortunately it was, I mean I knew, I hadn't really thought about the other, the lower surgery at all I just knew that I wanted to get rid of my chest because obviously I I know it's it's not the same for every trans guy I mean I know they want most guys want to get rid of their chest but a lot of guys obviously always feel like they missed out having a penis or whatever I never really felt like that I mean I just felt like get rid of these disgusting things Um and if you don't I'll cut them off myself but unfortunately because of the waiting list with the NHS then, it also wasn't a very common operation, I had to wait six years between starting the hormones and having the chest surgery. So that was quite a hellish time, because obviously I was getting the facial facial hair, the voice was dropping, I was getting the body hair, you know, I, I changed my name, and, you know, people were reading me as a guy, but I was still having to, you know, strap the chest down, and it was just very, very uncomfortable. So I think once I'd had that done, I was so much happier, the OCD got better, uh, I was happier in my relationship, and I thought, yeah, yeah, that's all I want, I'm not really bothered about the rest, and then within a year I was like, yeah, I oh am yeah, bothered about the rest, I want, I want to have the lower surgery, um, so I started looking into having the radial artery forearm, forearm flap, phalloplasty. Yeah, and then that started in 2008, I had the first op, I had it here in the UK, Um, But unfortunately I've had a lot of issues, a lot of problems, both with the surgery and with infections and things I didn't feel were explained properly, Um, things that I didn't feel were done properly and unfortunately it's still not completely finished and it's almost five years later, so that's quite depressing. I feel that I've never really been able to get on and do anything, um, especially when I started having the lower surgery I mean part of that is me anyway I'm not a particularly driven person which I've only starting to realise now but I do feel that I was always waiting I was waiting to start the hormones I was waiting for the chest surgery I'm now waiting to finish the lower surgery and I have done stuff obviously in between I've you know went to uni graduated I've been in loads of different plays I've created my own performances I've been a stand-up I got engaged to my long-term partner and was you know stepdad to her kids so I have done stuff and I have to remind myself of this but I do feel, I do still look around and think that these other people that are my age, I try not to look at people on the telly that are my age, that are billionaires, but anyway, I do have this thing that I always compare myself to people and that leads up to a lot of the depression, I guess. But yeah, I do feel, I still feel very held back in that I just feel I can't, I'm still waiting to to live the life that I should have been able to live from the beginning or at least, you know, most people get to start living their adult life when they hit... You know, whatever nineteen twenty, when they go to uni, or particularly after they've graduated, you get to start your proper adult life. And I still feel that feel like I'm not quite there. And I've had a number of people saying, "Oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't see things like that because you're. If you do that, you're forever waiting. You're not starting your life. You're missing out on opportunities." But um, on the other hand, I just I want to enjoy life with the complete body being able to function sexually how I want to function. You know, not having to go through all the rigmarole. Do I tell people, don't I? You know, Why isn't it not working? Blah, 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 blah. So in that, in that way, it has held me back, I guess, from getting on with life in general.
0: Oral contributor Ben Pritchard there. Our last batch is from Michelle Steele, Ed Whelan and Nick Douglas and covers work, relationships, mental health and invisibility, respectively.
6: The work situation was another thing that really helped me back from transitioning and coming out. And I was very worried because there was no, no real knowledge of, of transgender at my workplace. And I, I think it wasn't malicious, but I don't think they really knew about these things. I just was fortunate enough to kind of come out to the right person and basically just admit, you know, what was going on. I didn't really plan it. It just happened as part of a chat. I think we were, there was a conversation actually about trans people in Brighton. And uh, I got upset. One of my managers just said, well, you know, you touched a nerve here? And I said, well, yeah, you know, as it happens. And then it was from there, it was just, let's get HR involved. Let's talk about how we're going to sort this out. And then I took a day off work and I helped draft an email that they would send round. And um next day I came in after they'd sent the email round and I got, my inbox was full of happy emails. People sort of saying, you know, good on you and I hope it goes well. And I think most people were generally quite accepting it's been very difficult for people to work. And I, I, I think we wrote the right email, which was basically very f- formal. It came from the management as well, which made it sort of more bona fide, you know. <laughs> I included some links to resources like Clear Project, like um, the GRS website and so on. So it was informational in case people had never heard of this. And also I said... If anyone's got any questions, I'm quite happy to talk to people if they want to talk to me. Yeah, and it worked because I've been there now, you know, with, with, with my name and transitioned at work with hardly any issues. Yeah, the actual work just keeps you involved in something that's not actually related to gender at all. (laughs)
7: Well, <laughs> so it's, it's sort of a break from all the rest of my life in a way <laughs> just get on with that what I clocked first of all was that I'd always imagined whenever I imagined myself in a relationship or having sex with somebody I'd imagine myself as a guy even as a child I'd imagined myself as an adult man and I was like that's a bit weird I'm sure other women don't do that I, me- I imagine they don't they don't seem to talk about it as if, if they do so then then I started looking into wearing more men's clothing, and then I came across the FTM UK website. So it was through trying to figure out what the hell was going on with me sexually and why I had a problem with sex, some kind of problem with it, that I found my, my transness. <laughs> I found that I was trans, basically. Um, so it definitely messed up my first relationship. Um, then after I started to transition, I thought. I thought everything would be fine. I was I was planning... Well, I was planning to have lower surgery at some point, but it was back in 2001. It wasn't... It was still looking kind of shaky as a surgery. Um, it's still looking like it, it gave quite bad results. So I thought, oh, I'm not in a rush to have that surgery. I'll be fine. But then my next big serious relationship was basically ruined
8: by the difficulties that I had with sex. So, yeah. For various historical reasons, trans medicine has been kind of, um, it's been managed by, within a mental health framework, particularly psychiatry. And I think that's, you know, if you look back at the history of psychiatry, psychiatry does not have a proud history in terms of dealing with queer people per se. You know, you've only got to look at things like, you know, aversion therapy and shock therapy and those kinds of things. And, um, and you know, I-, I think psychiatry is absolutely the wrong place um, for this kind of medicine to be located, but historically that's where it is. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of psychiatrists are still in the mode of, you know, very traditional mode of kind of doctor-patient. The powerful doctor makes the decisions for the sick patient but the thing is, I'm not sick, you know, not in relation to being trans, I'm not sick, and I certainly don't need anyone else making those decisions for me, and on that kind of level, I've, I've really struggled with transition, I've really struggled with uh, the, um, the, well, the imposition of a mental health diagnosis, for one. Um, I'd never seen a psychiatrist before in my life, and now, you know, because I needed to transition, suddenly I had a psychiatrist and a mental health diagnosis. You know, and, and that, that was and remains challenging for me. Um, you know, I think if you do have mental health problems and you need access to that support, absolutely fine. I don't think that's a problem at all. But I didn't. What I needed was access to the means to transition. And I had to accept a mental health diagnosis in order to get get access to that. And, and that still, you know, that's that still makes me angry. Um and I and I I'm still angry about the fact that you know there's such a it's such a waste of resources in the sense that there are people with mental health problems who really could use the help of psychiatrists you know good sympathetic psychiatrists and you know those people should have access to that resource I didn't need it what I needed was access to the mi- the means to transition um, and I had to go through those those as gatekeepers to to do that now. As I say, I was fortunate. I found a psychiatrist I could work with, um, you know, somebody who, who understood that, you know, I, I'm a personality type who, you know, if you, if you try and control me in that way, what you will get is an oppositional response. And I think he got that really quickly. And, and I actually, as an individual, I have a really good relationship with the guy who manages my my treatment at, at the GIC. We've managed to find a way forward, but only within a broader framework that is really about, it is about control.
1: Do you think that there's issues that are specific to men in this situation?
8: Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the reasons um, myself and, and a few buddies here in Brighton Um, set up a FTM trans support group called FTM Brighton. It was modelled on the London group. And the reason for that is because I've always been really, really aware that our issues are are different from those of trans women. Um, I think trans women experience possibly more kind of um, verbal abuse and violence on the street. Um, But I think our issue is different and what we suffer from really massively is invisibility. Um, I mean this is incredible to me even now to say it, but the reason that I transitioned quite late in life was because I actually didn't know it was possible. I didn't know the medical technology existed to make it possible. And this is is incredible to me because I had, you know, prior to that, I had a a trans woman friend and we never talked about the fact that she was trans. She didn't want to talk about it. And, you know, we were a circle of friends and we all knew, but we never talked about it with her. So he, I had a trans friend all that time and I didn't know that it was possible. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, there's that that phrase, invisibility kills, and it really does, you know, it really does. So I'm very much, I do really think that we do have issues as, as trans men.
0: We've been playing Trans Histories today from the Brighton Transform Project. EJ Scott is still with us in the studio. Thank you so much for staying with us. It's an amazing project and I hope it goes on to inspire other parts of the UK and indeed the world so that they can also tell us about their important stories in and around their own communities. EJ, how can people connect to the project, you know, URLs, Facebook and Twitter
1: please Um, listen I'd encourage people to go on and have a look at our Brighton Transformed exhibition Facebook page you'll find all the links from there but it documents the whole process there's lovely pictures if you just do a general search as well on the net for Brighton Transformed Queen's Park Books will come up and they've got a very nice description of it because the project came out of that community publisher
0: and I'm sure the book is imminent is that right
1: yes it's about to come out we're going to have a book launch again keep, keep track of us on Facebook, and you'll see all the details there. Fox is busy designing away as we speak. He's at home at the desk right now.
0: Lovely. Now, before we say goodbye, uh, it's fair to say you've been strong armed into doing a journey <laughs> song for us. Uh, what's the track and Why does it resonate so much with you?
1: Claire, I have chosen Craftworks Trans Europe Express because I am a bit of a Trans Europe Express myself. Um, I've been around the world and touched base with trans communities. I started my hormones in Melbourne. Um, Vietnam, Japan in Tokyo, I hooked up with a um, trans group there when I was living there and used to have to go up a skyscraper and meet with these group of Japanese guys in this this tiny little hidden room, it was amazing. Um, Over in Madrid, I was part of a group there where the girls used to go on the game to raise money for, for their surgery and then go off the game, it was like an Amadora film. Um, over here as well obviously I've hooked up with groups but Brighton's where I sit now and, and where I'm happiest so yep, it's a nice one.
0: Well, that's it for today. Thanks to my studio guest EJ Scott for coming in and telling us about Brighton Transformed, which we know will go from strength to strength. So listen out for some more trans testimonies on Radio Reverb going forwards and buy the book when it comes out. May they inspire, make you laugh, cry, shout out, enjoy your anger, make you think or just make you. If you missed today's show, it's repeated this Monday at 8am, Wednesday at 2pm, and Thursday at 3am. Or you can catch us anytime on time4tea.podomatic and on iTunes by searching for Claire Parker in the iTunes store. Yay! Of course, if you want to contact us about anything you've heard in the show or you just want to have a journey song played for you, please drop us a line by clicking on shows on RadioReverb.com and look for Time for Tea. That's the number four and the letter T. We're also on Facebook and, again, you can find us by searching for Time for Tea. Lastly, you can tweet us anytime on It's Time for Tea or It's Claire Parker. Playing us out, the everlasting stones and you can't always get what you want. But as we've hopefully shown today, you may get just what you need.
9: I saw her today at the reception A glass of wine in her hand I knew she was going to meet her connection At her feet was a loose man Get my fair share of abuse. views Singing words gonna vent our frustration If we don't, we're gonna blow a 50 amp fuse Sing it to me. You can't always get
10: what you want You can't always get what you want
9: Just by far. You get what you
10: need Oh baby
9: yeah. uh-huh. I went down to the Chelsea drugstore To get your prescription filled. I was standing in line with Mr. Jimmy